Hello, and welcome to Chronicle on Riot Radio. I'm your host, Mitchell Reed. And I'm John Wilson. We've been out of the studio since March 6, 2020, so we can't wait to share this experience with all of you. Today we'll bring you a wide range of stories. We'll find out how a local organization is helping people during the pandemic, and learn about the return of esports, and of course, Halloween is just around the corner. So we'll have more about horror movies filmed in Durham. And we'll bring you local music from Quinn Mills, now on to our first story. The provincial government is expected to announce later today that COVID-19 restrictions will be lifted in places such as restaurants and gyms soon. Meanwhile, movie theaters are fully open as COVID numbers continue to decline in Ontario. As Jermaine Mohan reports it, it may be fun for moviegoers, but it's extra work for movie theater operators. With big names such as James Bond and Spider-Man on screen this fall, theaters in the area are operating at full capacity based on provincial guidelines. Kathy Herstoff is the owner of the Roxy Theatre in Uxbridge. Her theatre has been open since July and has been following COVID safety protocols. Christoph has to make some out-of-pocket decisions to comply. Uh, checking the vaccination, um, you know, that everyone is double-vaxxed and checking their ID and then also completing the screening, you know, uh, report as soon as they come in the door. So we had to hire an extra person to, or not hire, but have an extra person on staff just to handle that protocol. Cineplex declined to be interviewed, but Director of Communications Melissa Prosecco provided a statement. In it, she said that the theater chain has seen millions of movie lovers, but had zero instances of COVID-19 transmission. Meanwhile, Christoph at the Roxy adds that while audience members have been small and slow since July, she is now seeing more people come back to her theater. In Oshawa reporting for The Chronicle, I'm People in Oshawa have struggled with COVID for more than a year now, and it's had a big effect on the city's most vulnerable families. Mitchell Reed has more about how Simcoe, Hall Settlement, Harris has continued helping them through, through the pandemic. The Oshawa-based charity has been an ally to the community despite COVID challenges. Most of Simcoe Hall's programs stayed running with a few changes. A good thing, too, since Tiffany Kift, Simcoe Hall's administrative coordinator, says the programs are seeing more use than ever before, and they've had to change how they deliver. This year and last year, we've had to adapt the way that we do the delivery of the program to follow COVID restrictions and guidelines. So now our clients are serviced outdoors to maintain social distancing and COVID protocols. Kiff says Simcoe Hall delivered more than 2,000 high-quality backpacks this year, loaded with supplies, more than ever before. A feat, she says, made possible by donations from the community. Even their after-school program was delivered online last year. But it's back now. A big part of Simcoe Hall's aid is educational. The idea is to give uh, the kids in our community a great start as they head into school and so that they feel like they're entering school with the same advantages of their fellow classmates. Single mother Natalia Murin says Simcoe Hall's programs have helped her and her two boys immensely. Simcoe Hall became my family. I'm going to foot bank every second Tuesday. My kids go to after school program. I'm gonna drop them today. They have amazing program there, make friends. As the holiday season approaches, Simcoe Hall Settlement House is also looking for more volunteers, people willing to give a little help to those in need. In Oshawa, reporting for The Chronicle, I'm Mitchell Reed. The countdown to Reading Week is in its final stretch, but how will that sweet week-long break be spent? We asked Durham College students and President Don Lovisa how they will be using their time. 
I love to relax and read and stuff. Hopefully I get to read an actual book. I'm in photography. No, I'm already caught up with all my work. Just a break from everything, you know? Chance to meet up with friends and just de-stress. Well, I think it's always a well-deserved break for the students to, to regroup, get any assignments done that maybe have to be done, that, you know, a little bit of catch-up for students. It also gives faculty uh, an opportunity to get some of their prep work done and marking done as well. So it's just nice to have a break in the middle of the How can journalists do their jobs better when they're covering marginalized communities? That's the question at the heart of a panel at Durham College next month. The Inclusion and Diversity, Diversity Panel looks at how to be better allies to the black community and people with disabilities. The panel is called EDI and Journalism, which is a collaboration with the Region of Durham City Studio Project. Simon Jarrett is a journalism student, one of the producers at the panel. So we'll talk about how journalists can feel more comfortable asking the tough questions and start to be more inclusive in the stories that we cover and the people that we talk to. The panel will feature guests such as Juetta Gupta, who is a blind journalist at the CBC, and Brian Daly, who is a director with the Canadian Association of Black Journalists. Students from the journalism program, along with faculty and guests in the region, will also join the Q&A discussion. But it is open to the general public as well. The panel will be held on Zoom and in the Global Classroom on November 2nd from 2.30 to 4.30 in the afternoon. Durham Region Transit, Transit is investing in hybrid buses to be more eco-friendly. Next year, the transit service will have 10 hybrid buses in its fleet. The main goal is to start replacing diesel-only buses that produce too many greenhouse gases, or GHGs. Durham Region Transit Deputy General Manager of Maintenance, Audra McKinley, says this is an important change. Reducing the amount of GHGs that are going uh, into the environment. So a hybrid is a, it's one of the good methods that'll be able to help us take care of some of those goals that the region has put in place. McKinley says each hybrid bus costs almost $960,000, about $300,000 more than diesel-only buses. She says that even though hybrid buses are more expensive to buy than the diesel-only buses, the hybrid versions have better fuel economy and produce less CO2. The buses are expected to be on the road by June 2022. Halloween is just around the corner and kids are excited to get head out, head out to trick or treat. Also, residents are already lining up the streets with spooky decorations for a good scare. Although Durham's Health, Durham Health says it's safe to go out this year, it's encouraging people to incorporate real face masks and avoid costume ones. Ashwa Mother Sabi Abdullah says kids should be able to enjoy their childhood, especially during such difficult times. She also encourages other parents to follow the health department's protocols so everyone can have a safe Halloween. For the safety of the kids um, and my kid who is six years old, I've, um, I will ensure that there is a sanitizer outside my house and before I hand out the candies to the little ones, I will ensure that I sanitize my hands, wear a mask um, and then hand the candies over to the kids. I hope this Halloween is great and fun and different for everyone. Have a safe and happy Halloween.
Welcome to sports. I'm Corrado DiStefano. Coming up, the Lord's women's rugby team has a perfect record heading into the championship. And we have a feature interview with the men's rugby captain, Malcolm Hooper, who misses last championship because of a gruesome injury. But first, Ontario Tech's hockey team is back after an 18-month hiatus due to COVID. The Ridgebacks men's hockey team won their game against the Guelph Griffins yesterday with a final score of 3-2 in a shootout. The team has been practicing since the beginning of the semester. I dropped by the rink to talk to players and staff about the upcoming season. First-year player Andrew Searyuth got on the ice for the first time with the team about two months ago. I feel really good. Um, felt like this past month of training camp and practice has went really well. It's been a good opportunity for guys who have been, you know, in the COVID scenarios where there's no ranks open and stuff. Got a chance to get back on the ice, get a feel for it. Searyuth is one of several new players. In fact, this year the team has two sets of recruits due to the pandemic year off. There are 11 players making their youth sports debut. The team played its first few preseason games last week. They played the Laurier Golden Hawks on Thursday and Saturday. They won the first game 2-1 at the Campus Ice Center. Forward Matthew Gamersic had an assist in the win. Once we got our legs under us, uh, it, was, it was a good game. Like We're all excited, you know, it's been 18 months. And to get back out there and be able to get a big win too afterwards is, is huge. The Ridgebacks lost the second game in Waterloo in overtime. Head coach Curtis Hutchins likes the team's start but wants to see improvements. Oh, yeah, you know what? We've seen a lot of good things. Um, uh, a, lot of, a lot of really good things, actually. Um, we've seen a few not-so-good things. Uh, we, we had a real slow start in Laurier the other night, and, um, and then the last half of the game, we were really good. The Ridgebacks play Saturday against the York Lions in Toronto. In Oshawa, reporting for the Chronicle, I'm Corrado Stefano. <laughs> To follow more men's Ridgebacks hockey, tune into the Ridgeback Recap on Riot Radio every Wednesday or on Instagram at the same time. The Durham Lords women's soccer team played its final game last week. The team ended its season with three wins, two ties, and two losses. The pandemic caused a late start to get back into the kick of things. The team lost two weeks of training camp, where they would have had four weeks in other years. Coach Alex Bianchi says the players weren't in the best shape and the lack of preseason training led to several injuries. Bianchi has coached the Lords for eight years and the last six years with the women's team. He says the highlights of the season were their last game against the Humber College. And he is proud of his players for the way they played. And he hopes to move forward next year. It's pretty good this year. We're glad to be back. Don't get me wrong, I was excited. Last year we didn't have anything. So to be able to play this year was was fantastic. but. It'll be nice when we get back to doing it the way we've always done. Bianchi credits the athletic department with making sure varsity sports ran this year. Esports is making a return to Durham College. The team had to operate from their homes last year due to the pandemic. With the 2021-2022 season underway, the varsity athletes will soon be back in the esports arena. The team's general manager, Bill I, says he looks forward to being in the arena again. So, you know, we, we have been able to, to continue to operate. However, uh, we would like to be back in the space, and we are going to be back in the space um, in a couple weeks. It is not known when the arena will be open to the student body. For now, the esports team remains the priority. Esports fans can tune in to watch on the official DC Twitch account. 
The Durham Lords women's rugby team is a perfect 5-0 heading into the Ontario Collegiate Championship this weekend. The Sevens team will have to defeat teams from across the province to secure the title. Head coach Chris McKee is proud of the team for being able to secure the top seed, giving them an easier path to the final. Our goal was to finish first. We felt all along that we had we had recruited really well. We thought we, had, we thought we had the best team, and we've shown even two close games against second and third place teams today. Um, it's there's not a whole lot of difference, but we still feel like we have the best team. The OCAA championship runs next weekend at Thompson Field in Oshawa. Not many athletes can say that the pandemic for them was good. But Durham Lords men's rugby captain Malcolm Hooper can. He was sidelined during the team's second championship run two years ago after a gruesome foot injury. He's back on the field after a nearly two-year break as they go for their third championship in a row. Ethan Ricker spoke to Malcolm Hooper earlier this week. When you, when you broke your foot, like, what was the extent of the injury? Was it like a clean break or... Like, did you did you think that there was any chance you could come back? Um, yeah, so it was, uh, it was a spiral fracture to my fibula with an ankle dislocation. So, I mean, I didn't think I could come back. I thought it was, like, basically, you know, career ending just because I was laying on the field and my foot was kind of turned the other way around. Um, at that point, I thought it was career ending, but I've had two, surger two surgeries since then, and I still have one more. Uh, coming up uh, once the championship is over. Um, but a lot of like rehab and a lot of, uh, of athletic therapy to get back into it. But no, at the time, I thought it was over. And when you're sitting there and you see your foot like that, what's yeah. going through your head? Um, well, for starters, I was in shock for sure. Yeah. Um, so everything was just, I went through weird phases. Like I went through extreme pain. And then, um, then kind of the pain subsided, and then I just went through like extreme irritability. So I had like 11 people around me all asking me questions, and I remember just looking at the athletic therapist and saying, like, "Leave me alone!" Like I, everything was bothering me. I wanted the oxygen mask; they put it on. Then, and then the strap was touching my cheek, and it was irritating me. So I was like, "Get it off me!" And then um, when I got into the um, when I got into the ambulance, they said that they were going to have to cut my boot off, but they were brand new boots. I'd only worn them uh, like for the three games. So, so I was saying like, no, and I was like irritable. I was upset. Like, don't cut it off. And they were like, Malcolm, like, you know, you'll lose your foot if we don't cut it off. Then I was all upset about that. So it's just like, it went from extreme pain to sadness because I thought it was all over. Like everything I'd worked towards to just, anger and frustration almost you know mm -hmm. and so when the pandemic hit obviously and i guess it would have been march after your injury yeah were you like obviously not relieved but what what were you thinking about the pandemic so you finally would get the chance to fully rehab where maybe when uh, or if you'd have a real season maybe you'd try and not rush yourself back out there but not be 100 percent no, honestly, I think it was like the timing was impeccable. It was crazy. Like I had a friend who had a similar injury. He broke his fibula as well, but he watched us play and watched us practice. And I know that was a different level of, of frustration for him. And when I broke it, obviously, like I didn't know that I missed the semifinals and I missed the championship. 
two very important games. So I had my own set of frustrations. But as soon as the pandemic hit, I never missed a practice or a game. Like I had a year and a half to like fully rehab, fully take my time. And like that was just that was a relief for me because I was in my bed with a broken leg. But I think everybody, like the general population was in their bed, you know? So it was almost a relief for me that I like you said, I didn't feel the need to to rush my rehab and I was able to take it more serious, I think, because I felt like I wasn't missing anything. And it kind of had that mentality too of like, once they saw me before the pandemic, I was I a broken leg, I was 180 pounds. Now it's like, watch me, like at the second we get back, I want to be 220 pounds. I want to be on two legs. I want to like, and it was just like a camouflage. You know what I mean? Like it was all like, where's Malcolm? How is he? And then all of a sudden it was like, I'm back. And I felt like I just, without missing a beat, I was back. Right, right. There wasn't that, that kind of, that safety pin for you, right? When you got back, you just jumped right in. Exactly, yeah. And so um, when, like, did you take a year off last year? Uh, no, I, I was I was studying uh, online. And uh, we were practicing, like, in the dome a few times with our rugby team, but no competition. Right, so I'd, even with school, you still were able to get out and still rehab and play. Yeah. yeah. And so, like, during your rehab, what would you say was, like, the one maybe goal or something that motivated you the entire time to get back out there? It was, it was the comeback. Yeah. It, was the, it was the comeback. It was missing the... It was missing the semifinals, missing the finals, that feeling of like, yes, we won, but like I was on crutches, like I didn't help my team. Like I felt like I hung them up to dry, even though it wasn't my fault. It still like felt that way. And so it was just like, it was just the comeback. Like through two surgeries, I got it, my, my uh, incision got infected. So I had like a nurse come and stick me with an IV and I had an IV in my hand for like, like four weeks and she would come and replace my bags. But it was just like, it's just when I come back, when, not if, when I come back, it's like, I'm going to be stronger. I'm going to be like, I'm going to do this like, right. 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 And so you guys have played a few games. Have you, you've gotten into them? Yeah. Yeah. I've been, I've played um, the whole game for every, all three of our games. All right. Thanks again for doing this. I, uh, best of luck this season and hopefully we'll get out soon. Yes, I appreciate that. Thank you. And that's all for sports. Next up is Joey Cole for arts. segment. I'm Joey Cole. Coming up, we hear about an Ajax musician who made an album alone during the pandemic. We also have a feature interview with DC Fine Arts professor Sean McQuay, who has been in the classroom throughout the pandemic. 
But first, we talk about Canadian Storytelling Day. Elsie Marie Knott was elected chief of the Curve Lake First Nation in 1954, the first Indigenous woman to hold this post in Canada. Her story is one of many stories being shared by the Durham Storytellers on Canadian Storytelling Day next month. Durham Storytellers is a group that gathers once a month to share folk tales, poems, family stories, or anecdotes. Prior to the pandemic, they met at the Northview Community Centre in Oshawa. Since then, they've been meeting over Zoom. On November 6th, as part of the Canadian Storytelling Day, member Kathleen Smith plans to tell the story of Knott. For me, her story is very inspiring. All of the things that she did for her, for her First Nations, it was amazing. Storytellers across Canada are invited to tell their stories. The theme of this year's Storytelling Day is Raising Spirits, Stories to Cheer and Inspire. With Halloween right around the corner, the scary movie marathons have officially begun. For GTA residents, many sites from iconic horror movies are just a drive away. The remake of Stephen King's It had fans flocking to James and Eulalie Street in Oshawa to see Pennywise's decrepit house. Although the prop house is now gone, the interior of the residence was filmed at the Cranfield House in Toronto. Horror directors like David Cronenberg, George Romero, and Guillermo del Toro have been at the forefront of Toronto filmmaking for decades. Author and blogger John Oberg says the GTA is also attractive to directors because it can pass as any city. It can look like New York. It can look like Baltimore, which Del Toro used in Shape of Water. It can look like all different kinds of places. Horror flicks like Land of the Dead, American Psycho, Resident Evil, and many more have also featured locations across the GTA. Many artists have had to find new ways to make art during the COVID-19 pandemic. Ajax musician Quinn Mills is one of them. He released his newest album, In Retrospect, in early August. He made it from his home, where he has a studio where he recorded the album, produced and promoted everything alone. I had to figure out how to play drums. I had to figure out how to do bass all myself. Um, so that was very hard. These restrictions forced Mills to switch genres from rock to R&B because he couldn't play with his band. Despite the hardships, he says making the album was an exciting new challenge. Here's one of his songs from that album. This is New Affection.
that everyone from teachers to students were online over the past year due to COVID, right? Wrong. That's not the case for our guest. Sean McQuaid teaches at the Fine Arts Program at Durham College, and he's been in the classroom most of the pandemic. Shalil Griffith-Ross met up with him in studio recently to find out what that was like. You guys were among some of the only professors that were teaching in person during the height of the pandemic? That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we were. Um, we, because of the nature of our classes, mm -hmm. it's not a <laughs> sitting in front of a screen necessarily uh, experience. It's mm -hmm. an actual hands-on tools and easels and workshops mm -hmm. and stretching canvases and all the good stuff, yeah. the meat of the, of the situation. So it's hard for students to do that remotely at home. First of all, you have to get all their materials out to them, mm -hmm. uh, which we did in the beginning. We did a lot of uh, uh, curbside delivery of art supplies. Mm -hmm. um, we had our great um, assistants, technicians, uh, Megan Pickle and Oliver um, Fernandez um, helping us with that, getting the, the materials mm -hmm. out to them. And myself, between the three of us, we really had to hustle and get that organized. Yeah. So, uh, but at the very beginning, we could, we were allowed to use the rooms as long as we observed yeah. the protocols. Mm -hmm. So we had, I booked, um, we're sitting in L223, for example, mm -hmm. which is a foundation room. And normally we'd have about 22-ish students in a class, mm -hmm. sometimes 24, yeah. So which we couldn't do. Mm -hmm. So we booked, we double booked studios. Mm -hmm. So I would split the, uh, the block of students into two or three, depending on it, mm -hmm. you because know, we it was a, you know, the whole protocol, six yeah. feet at a distance, mm -hmm. number of students allowed in the rooms. So we were running this thing from studio to studio. Mm -hmm. So it was a lot of running around back and forth. Because a lot of what I do with them and a lot of other faculty with uh, the art program, it's a lot, it's one-on-one -on -one consultations. Yeah. That's the experience of individual, um, you know, learning and, 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 uh, and uh, project making and then we do we do group critiques yeah. as well room so I could okay. be in this room demonstrating mm -hmm. and um, I'd be streamed into the next room or oh, two okay. and they're watching along and it worked perfectly and then once that was over I could do my uh, individual rotation rotations so that worked quite well and uh, and then when we went into there was one period there where we had a full lockdown last January, mm -hmm. um, which lasted up until the midterm, so nobody could come in. Mm -hmm. So we still streamed from here. But yeah, we were the only, really, there was a time there where it felt like a ghost town. Mm -hmm. it, it did. And also, what really what really sucked was that Tim Hortons couldn't be open very much. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, not that we were allowed to eat or drink in the rooms, but even having that not mm -hmm. close by as a bit of a comfort. They weren't there during the real lockdown. Yeah. And, you know, it was a, oh, you had to bring your own thermos of coffee yeah. <laughs> and your own cheese sandwich mm -hmm. and eat it in your office. Yeah, <laughs> you couldn't eat it in the room. Yeah, yeah. You can see over uh, we have we store our, all the projects in the rooms, and those are actually those paintings we're looking at are from last year still, oh. where people couldn't uh, they couldn't arrange to come in because there were restrictions for coming yeah. in to get their work, and we're still trying to uh, get work back to students. Um, I have to do something about that soon because so my new. A lot of students like have been asking you like about their work. From... I get emails uh, from them. Do you still have my? Uh, yes, you're mm -hmm. lucky. We do, but yeah, you know we didn't want to uh, toss them because of the nature of the year we went through. Mm -hmm. We want to keep everybody uh, yeah happy, but uh, for the most part, the art students were 
quite happy to have a space to work in because they don't have spaces at home to work in. Mm -hmm. Not like this, not a studio space. You know, they'd be working from their bedrooms on projects. Yeah. You know, like I'm working on my pillow right now. I'm trying to get paint on my pillow. Yeah. Ah, no, this is where they want to be. So, mm -hmm. you know. so that worked out for them. So did you find like you'd still have like a normal amount of like in-person students, or did you find that there was some? Um, when we went into total lockdown last January, and we had to be, we yeah. couldn't. No, that was there was no ifs, 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 ands, or buts. So they had to be at home. Yeah. Um, when we were suddenly able to come back in at midterm, after midterm mm -hmm. that year, the option was for those who were at home to stay if they wanted to. So we had um, we had both happening. Some mm -hmm. just wouldn't come in, or they wanted to stay home and work. When, when it was available, they were in here like a charge. It was mm -hmm. like, okay, we get to use the studio as well. Yeah. You know, because they're all they're paying for it too. It's part of their tuition. Yes. Pay for the space. They're not paying to mm -hmm. sit at home and work on a pillow. <laughs> What have you learned as a teacher through teaching during this pandemic? Well, I've learned that um, it's twice the amount of work <laughs> if you're screaming at the same time as teaching. Mm -hmm. If you have a live situation uh, in the classroom and students are at home and you're streaming at the same time, because mm -hmm. you have to, uh, you really have to juggle that. Um, and if everybody's at home, like for those those couple months, mm -hmm. then you really have to put all their supplies together. Yeah. Our art students get a lot of supplies. Yeah. Like for one class, I just, I decided to stretch uh, I stretched thirty canvases mm -hmm. for the thirty students in the second year class just mm -hmm. to get get the motivation going. Mm -hmm. So there's like a it, it was a lot of extra time in preparations. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, normally we all put 100 percent into that anyway <laughs> this year. And I think I think not. This speaking for myself and a lot of. Uh, I can speak for a lot of other faculty here that people are really, they're champions, they're doing it, mm -hmm. but you are inevitably feeling a little burnt out Yeah. after a while, you know, like we're uh, after this is finished, if it, if it is, does finish, mm -hmm. COVID business, yes. we're really all going to need a long sabbatical. Yeah. <laughs> Sean McQuay is a fine arts professor at Durham College. Next up, Mitchell and John return with more.
The number of stray cats in Oshawa has at least tripled since 2018. It's a problem across Durham region. Now, at least one group says action needs to be taken to help rescue and prevent feral cats. Caitlin Bolt reports. The Oshawa Animal Services Shelter took in more than 1,700 stray cats in 2020 alone. This is almost triple compared to 2018 when they took in just over 600. The increase is mainly due to cats not being spayed or neutered. Kelly Gear of Xbridge is trying to help them. She founded Barncat Co-op four years ago as a nonprofit. Her goal is to help feral cats get vetted and rehomed into safe barns. At our barns, um, we travel really long distances to find good barns that have a heat source and that just really have caring individuals. And, and they serve a purpose, right? They're working cats. The barns aren't looking for, you know, a, a companion to, you know, sit on sit on their lap, a laptop. They're, you know, they're they're wanting road, you know, control in their barns, and in turn, they give the cats a lovely home. Barncat Co-op and Oshawa Animal Services run two of Durham's trap and release programs. These TNR programs, as they're called, are helpful in reducing the number of stray cats. Cats get vaccinated, microchipped, and spayed or neutered before being re-released. So I think that's one of the keys to have that affordable vetting. Um, and I think more uh, organizations need to have TNR programs within their community. Oshawa's got one, fantastic. There are a lot more cities and towns need to have that program there. Gear says the pandemic has contributed to the population boom. She says people have wanted to buy cats from her just to breed them and sells the kittens, which have been in high demand. Whitby resident Lisa Parker had an incident when she was adopting what she thought were two healthy kittens. Um, someone that I know on Facebook had put an ad up saying that they needed to rehome his two kittens. The man in the ad failed to mention some very important information. We got them. They were definitely not kittens. <laughs> they were already uh, bigger and older cats. I was a little tiffed because, you know, it was he, he was not transparent with me. The cats were dropped in blanket-covered cages on her doorstep with no warning. She uncovered them to see hissing cats who were unsocialized. A couple of my friends said, oh, you should just like take them back. Like two of them, I said, well, I said, I don't even know where he lives. <laughs> Thankfully, this story worked out for the best. The cats, Angel and Cuddles, are learning how to accept love in the caring home of Parker and her son. Gear says experiences like these underscore why cat rescue and TNR-based organizations need to be in place. She says reducing the number of strays will ensure fewer cats get into the hands of people who don't care about their well-being. Meanwhile, Barn Cat Co-op continues to rescue litters of stray cats that she domesticates so they can go to families. Gear also has hundreds of cats being fostered while waiting for new homes. But the calls don't stop. In Oshawa, reporting for The Chronicle, I'm Caitlin Bull. Consider this. Being in the dark about how or whether your work season is going to unfold, and yet still having to plan for every scenario, just in case. That's exactly what our guest has been going through since the beginning of the pandemic. Linda Turner is a controller at Lake Bridge Ski Resort north of Whitby. 
After seeing most of the staff laid off temporarily last season, she has high hopes of a better season this year. Sophia Birke spoke with Linda Turner earlier this week. So how was it being closed because of COVID? How did it? Painful. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so last year, um, you know, going into the season, we didn't know for the longest time what restrictions we'd be dealing with. So they told us very last minute exactly what we were allowed to, you know, how we were allowed to operate essentially, capacity, what areas of the resort, and all that kind of thing. Um, so that was tough. There was a lot of scrambling, um, last minute scrambling in making sure that we were um, compliant with that. And then I think it was about, I want to say 12 days into the season, um, we found out that we would have to close. So we got Christmas Day in, we were open Christmas Day, and then the following day we were shut down. Um, so that is really tough on, of course, everybody. Uh, and then we ended up being closed, I guess, for probably, what was that, about six weeks or so before we got to reopen. And then we were able to finish out the season and it was busy when we reopened, that's for sure. What impacts did, did the resort have because of it being closed and like because of COVID and even in your job? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, um, I mean, I guess the primary impact would be on revenue, of course. You know, when we're not open, we can't make money. When we were open, but with restrictions, we weren't able to make the same amount of money that we were able to just because the capacity was less. Um, but also, um, when we were open, there were so many new steps, I guess, new processes that we had to implement, like um, these health screenings, or we call them wellness screenings, um, they had to take place. Um, so we had a, a person uh, situated at the front door, a couple of different entrances actually, to check every single person, make sure that they had their health screening um, completed and that they passed. Um, everyone had to reserve their spot ahead of time. So we couldn't accept walk-ins last year. So we had to check and make sure that everyone had reservations. If you didn't have a reservation, unfortunately, you were likely to be turned away if we didn't have you know, room for you. Um, so there were a lot of these new roles that we had to create and that meant higher payroll. So payroll was certainly higher compared to the revenue that we were taking in. Um, so that was difficult. Also, we had to, you know, uh, make some changes around the chalet. We added a lot of hand sanitizing stations. Um, we had to add a lot of plexiglass barriers where the cashiers are. We were actually ready to go with an indoor dining area that was sectioned off with plexiglass as well. We weren't able to utilize that at all last year, um, but that was, you know, some renovations that we that we took on that cost more money. Um, yeah, and just like sanitizing solutions and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it definitely had a huge financial impact on the business. Um, I myself actually did take, I guess, take leave for uh, I think about three or four weeks when we were closed, but that's kind of a more personal thing. My kids all of a sudden were at home, not going to school anymore. So uh, my husband wasn't working from home at the time. So I stayed home with them for a little bit. Um, there were a few core staff that were able to keep their jobs even while they were closed, but most of the staff were laid off temporarily until we were able to reopen again.
Mm -hmm. um, so how is the resort preparing to reopen for this season? Like, what are the main changes that are happening right now? Yeah, well, so we still don't know exactly what we're dealing with for this year. Again, um, hopefully they'll give us a bit more notice than last year, but here we are already getting towards the end of October and haven't heard anything. We're very optimistic that for outdoor operations, um, there isn't going to be much in the way of restrictions in terms of capacity. The last question, um, how important is this, this season for the resort to rebuild itself? It would be really important. Um, one of the things that was really unique about last year is that even though, you know, we had a shorter season by far and capacity was limited, what was on our side was that a lot of other um, recreational things were closed down. Ski resorts were one of the few things that could stay open last year. So last year, we actually, when we were open, we had so much demand, more demand that we could fulfill. Um, a lot of new people, new people to the sport ended up coming out. So we hope to see some of those faces come back again, in addition to our regulars, the people who are already, you know, doing the sport. Um, but hopefully we can see some of those new faces coming back this year. Um, this year, this season, there will be those other facilities open. So now there is more competition for us. And so we do anticipate that some of those new people last year will kind of go back to what they would have done otherwise, whether it's just going to the movies or other indoor things. Um, but yeah, we have, we have some lost revenue to make up for 100%. So it's gonna be important that we, um, you know, I guess, just maximize our revenue potential for this year. It's been six years since the TRC first published the 94 Calls to Action. The college has achieved three goals, one of which is implementing an Indigenous Histories course for students and faculty. Cheyenne Jared has more on the college's path to reconciliation. The Grandfather Teachings the grandfather teachings act as a guide for Amino Bimadzuin, living a good life in Anishinaabe culture. The grandfather teachings include love, represented by the eagle, respect, represented by the buffalo. These teachings are a part of the Indigenous Histories and Reconciliation modules on DC Connect. Bernie LaRue is the narrator and part of the team that developed the course. He teaches in the video production program. He is also Métis. Each module in the course is named after the seven grandfather teachings in Anishinaabe culture. The module one is love, two is respect, three is honesty, four is humility, five is bravery, six is truth, and seven is wisdom. The modules were primarily designed for faculty, but are now available to students and other institutions as well. Each of the modules under each of those themes unpacks how those principles are guiding us in learning and how can, they can help us back towards reconciliation. The modules were developed in response to the TRC's calls to action. The commission took six years, heard more than 6,000 stories, and produced 94 calls to action. The Prime Minister repeated 19 of the 94 calls from the report have implications for post-secondary education. Call number 62 focuses on the need for institutions to implement curriculum and resources to help people learn about histories and current state of Indigenous peoples. And colleges across Ontario are trying to meet some of the goals. 
For example, Humber College offers the RBC Grad Ready Program. It's aimed at helping Indigenous students and recent grads get employment after their first year. Fanshawe, George Brown, and Durham College have some form of what DC calls its Indigenization Council, which reports to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission about its progress. We, as a college, have a significant role to play in advancing the process of Canadian reconciliation is, is a top priority. Elaine Pop is the Vice President of Academic at Durham College. She says the college has put many different initiatives into play since it signed on to the Indigenous Education Protocol for Colleges and Institutes. It outlines seven principles to guide institutions as they work towards reconciliation. This means incorporating Indigenous history and culture into the curriculum of media, healthcare, legal, and business programs, and it includes the land acknowledgement. But it also is intended to provide our Indigenous students with a greater sense of their cultural backgrounds being valued by us here at the college um, and that they see it positively reflected on campus and in their studies. Next semester, the college will make it mandatory for all new students joining the Schools of Health and Community Services and Justice and Emergency Services to take a Gen Ed course in Indigenous Histories. The college currently offers four Gen Ed options in this area. This is addressing Call 24 that calls on all medical and nursing schools in Canada to include teachings on the history and legacy of residential schools, rights, and practices. While we're starting with the programming and programming in those two schools, the hope and intent would be that it would expand to all programs within all schools as we roll this forward. Pop says about 800 students are expected to take one of the Gen Eds for those programs. Ralph Hoffman is the Executive Dean for the School of Health and Community Services. He says students in his school are all being encouraged to take one of the courses. We're going to strongly encourage them to take the courses, right? Because one, it complies with the TRC, and two, it's really just about being a Canadian in 2021. He also says the college has done a lot of work towards reconciliation. We have a First Peoples Centre, we have a healing garden, we have a partnership to deliver our paramedic program with Seven Generations Educational Institute in Kenora. But he says the college is finally filling the missing piece by implementing mandatory Indigenous history courses. And this was the, the piece of the puzzle that we hadn't really addressed. Call number 86 asks that journalism schools teach journalism students the history of Indigenous peoples. Brian Legree is the program coordinator of the Journalism Mass Media Program. He says they are working on incorporating that into the journalism program. It's a, I don't want to call it complicated, but it's kind of a longer process than really we, any of us would like it to be. Um, we are going through a program review right now, and that is clearly one of the things that will be changed within our program studies, within the two-year program studies, that there will be um, an, an Indigenous course, much like there was in the three-year program. Although the two-year diploma program does incorporate some elements of Indigenous histories learning, Legree says they need to take the extra step. You know, we take it seriously uh, in terms of incorporating in our course load, but now we have to take it that further step of making sure that we have an actual course. But LaRue says there is still a long way to go. He says this includes hiring more Indigenous instructors, scholars, lecturers, and staff. So it's important that we see uh, indigenous faces 
at the front of the class as well, that we create an atmosphere where we're decolonizing and unpacking some of this embedded systemic uh, knowledge that we're, we're kind of given from an early age. It's a very slow process. It's sometimes painful, but um, it's something we have to face as a, as a country. In Oshawa, reporting for The Chronicle, I'm Cheyenne Jarrett. On behalf of The Chronicle students, we'd like to thank you all for listening. Follow us at chronicle.durhamcollege.ca and on our Instagram page and on Twitter at DCUOIT Chronicle for more information and updates. Our next show will be on November 19th. Join us then to hear more from our campus and community. Thanks for listening and have a wonderful day. Now to go out, here's Courage by the Tragically Hip. The car.